I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to end up in Jeremiah 7, but we'll begin in Jeremiah 1. Well, historians have described Scotland in the 1500s as a, quote, brutal backwater kingdom. It was dominated by cruel civil authorities and corrupt religious leaders. And born into this context in Scotland was a man you have perhaps heard of. One biographer described him this way. It said, quote, I know not if God ever placed a more godly and great spirit in a body so little and frail, end quote. His name was John Knox. And he was a Scottish Protestant and reformer. And after being called to preach in his early 30s, he was captured and forced to be a galley slave on board of a French ship. And that put him in a difficult situation because his captors were Catholics. So for 19 months, he ate horrible food, he drank putrid water, and he endured brutal physical labor. And as any good Catholic would at the time, the French crewmen attempted to convert Knox. And to get him to renounce his Protestant faith, one of the tactics they tried to use was to get Knox to venerate a wooden statue of Mary. So they took this small wooden statue of Mary and they forced it into Knox's hands. And we can picture his hands are frail, filthy. He is worn down, and one can only imagine the temptation in his mind. How much easier would his journey be if he just converted to appease his captors? So what does Knox do? Well, holding the little statue with a sudden motion, he chucks it overboard, and he says, let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. And that's the kind of man John Knox was. He was a man of firm conviction, of fearless resolve. He pursued Christ at a time when practicing the Protestant faith was a crime punishable by death. He urged the people of Scotland to abandon false religion and to embrace the gospel. And because of his preaching, he faced imprisonment and exile, attempted assassinations, and he went on to be the leading voice of the Scottish Reformation. In other words... He is a lot like Jeremiah. They, they both preach during dark days. They both proclaim truth in the midst of severe adversity. And they both called out to people who were entrenched in false religion. And called out to people who desperately needed reform. So last week we began our journey through the book of Jeremiah. And we're not going to go verse by verse through the whole book. But we are going to plant ourselves in an individual text each week. And last week we started with Jeremiah 1, 1 to 7. Where we saw Jeremiah's prophetic call to ministry from the Lord. And immediately after God calls Jeremiah as a prophet, the book introduces a threat that constantly looms over the book's pages and over Judah as Jeremiah unfolds. Look at Jeremiah 1, verse 14. Jeremiah 1, 14 says, Then Yahweh said to me, From the north, the evil will break open on all the inhabitants of the land. So who is this threat to the north? Well, it's Babylon. 
At this point in history, Babylon had cemented itself as a world power by defeating Assyria, which was located to the north of Judah. So if you picture a map, Babylon is starting to make its way south. And Judah and Jerusalem are right in the middle of its warpath. And because of Judah's sin, this threat is coming, and it looms large over Jeremiah as a book. So for example, turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, and look with me at verse 6. Jeremiah 4, 6 says something similar. It says, lift up a standard towards Zion and seek safety. Do not stand still, for I am bringing evil from the north and great destruction. And again, look at Jeremiah 6. Turn to Jeremiah 6, verse 1. Jeremiah 6, 1, flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Now blow a trumpet into Koah and raise a signal over Beth HaKerim, for evil looks down from the north as well as great destruction. So Jeremiah 1, 14, Jeremiah 4, 6, and Jeremiah 6, 1, we see this same threat coming from the north. As Jeremiah preaches, God makes clear Babylon is no mere geopolitical threat. Babylon is God's instrument of judgment that will come against Judah if they do not repent of their wickedness. But as the threat moves closer and it comes down from the north and these warnings ring out, the people of Judah don't care. They are completely indifferent. They are like a person swimming in an ocean, ignoring a shark that lurks just beneath the surface. How have they become so riddled with immorality? so spiritually complacent to God's warnings. Most of their doctrine is actually sound. Much of their religious practice is actually right. And yet, they are desperately in need of reformation. This passage that we're going to look at, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, contains timeless truths that we need to examine ourselves regularly because we like them, can affirm the right facts, and we can practice the right customs. We can do externally the right things for all the wrong reasons. So Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11, is going to force us to take a step back and to examine not merely what we do, but why we do it. So look in Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 1, The perfect and inerrant word of God reads, the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh saying, stand in the gate of the house of Yahweh and you shall call out there this word and you shall say, hear the word of Yahweh, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, make your ways and your deeds good and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in lying words, saying this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you truly make your ways and your deeds good, if you truly do justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own evil demise, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I give to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in lying words to no avail. Will you steal 
murder and commit adultery and swear while lying and burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a robber's den in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares Yahweh. So from this text, we will see three ways God exposes Judah's false religion. Three ways God exposes Judah's false religion so you will worship God rightly and live for his glory in your life. So we're going to see him expose their false religion in three ways. First, their false worship. Second, their foul living. And third, their fake repentance. So we begin with false worship in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 tells us the word of Yahweh comes to Jeremiah. And just notice where specifically is Jeremiah to deliver this message? Where is he to be? Well, verse 2, God tells him, stand in the gate of the house of Yahweh. So God commands Jeremiah to stand right in the middle of the focal point of Jewish religion. The temple. The house of Yahweh, the temple, was built by Solomon and it represented the dwelling place of God amongst his people. It is a sign of God's presence. And according to God's design, it is a site that is central to their worship. This is where they made sacrifices, where they brought burnt offerings and celebrated festivals. It is central to their identity and their religion. And because of this location, this passage is sometimes called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. And this same sermon is repeated twice in the book. Remember I mentioned last week, it kind of jumps back and forth. This is an example. When we come to Jeremiah 26, we're going to see the exact same sermon. So we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but it's recorded twice. And Jeremiah 26 verse 1 actually tells us when this sermon was preached. So Jeremiah 26 1 says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, Now, Jehoiakim, if you remember from last week, began his reign in 609 B.C. So Jeremiah likely preaches this sermon around 609 B.C. at the start of Jehoiakim's reign. And just as a refresher, by 609 B.C., Josiah has died. The repentance he led didn't stick. And the nation is spiraling further down the drain into sin. But the temple itself is doing just fine. As Jeremiah speaks in the temple, the middle of Jeremiah 7-2 says, there are so many people there, he is able to speak to all of Judah. So we, we don't know the exact occasion, but we know there is a large crowd that represents all of the nation present. So picture this scene. Put yourself there in your mind's eye. The temple is buzzing. People are coming and Going. The religious functions of the temple are firing on all cylinders. Religion is alive and well. And imagine, while you're there in the scene, that while you were there, you got to conduct a one-question survey. Imagine you got to hand out a survey with this one question to everyone that's there at the temple. Why are you here? Why are you here? What are you doing? And how would they answer What would your survey results show? Well, they are there. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, to worship Yahweh. To put it into our language today, these are church people. 
They are coming to worship, to bow before the Lord, to set aside time to praise God. And they would have said with their lips, we are here to worship God. But they could not honestly say that with their hearts. Everyone at the temple that day had a superficial appearance of godliness. And they were almost all there for the wrong reasons. So notice they are technically practicing the right religion. But God still calls them to repent of their false worship. Look at verse 3. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, make your ways and your deeds good, and I will let you dwell in this place. The, the NIV actually captures the meaning here well. The NIV reads, reform your ways and your actions. Reform your life. Repent. Public religion had been thriving, but the people desperately needed an internal reformation. So God exposes the heart of their false worship in verse 4. Do not trust in lying words saying, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. And perhaps you've heard that in the Old Testament, when something is repeated three times, that's for emphasis. So the example of this that we always hear is Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. It's emphasizing God's holiness. Well, notice the phrase that the people repeat three times. This is the temple of Yahweh. And these are lying words that the people are speaking. Now, think about this a moment. Is there anything inherently wrong or untrue in those words? Anything in those words that we would say is unorthodox. Every word of it is true at face value. It is doctrinally sound. It is Yahweh's temple. So externally, they do and they say the right thing, but internally, what are they trusting in? The physical building, the temple itself. Their faith wasn't in God. The temple was itself good in its proper place that God had commanded it to have. It was a location that he said to come to for worship, but they wrongly thought it doesn't matter why we're here. It doesn't matter how we live as long as we show up. As long as we go through the rituals at the temple, we and God are on good terms. So don't worry about the threat to the north. Because we're doing the worship thing. We're following the ritual. The people invoke the temple as a sort of magical incantation. This is a religious rabbit's foot. This is a charm that they would whip out to make themselves feel better. So as Jeremiah warns of coming judgment, they think destruction won't come on us. We worship God. We go to the temple. And many professing believers today are very similar. And no matter how long you have professed to be a Christian, ask yourself, do you trust in Jesus or do you trust in your religious works? Many today rest in religious works instead of what God has done, and they don't even realize it. And the works they trust in are often good, but they are still false hopes. And this happens all the time. You ask somebody, what makes you a Christian? What is a Christian? And they run straight to their works. Today, it's things like, instead of saying, I come to the temple, it's, I read the Bible. I read the Bible. I read the Bible. What makes you a Christian? I pray to prayer. I pray to prayer. I pray to prayer. Or I'm part of a church. I'm part of a church. I'm part of a church. No mention of Christ. No mention of grace. No mention of repentance or faith. That's not the gospel. But that is an awful lot like the false religion Jeremiah is rebuking here. 
Bible reading and prayer and church attendance, those are good things. But good things can't save us. God saves us. And then we use the means he's given us to grow in our knowledge of him, to worship and delight in him. And they had lost sight of that truth. So they were functionally practicing false worship, just going through the motions of the routine. And also ask yourself, even if you know I don't trust in my works, I know I'm trusting in Christ alone, in his grace alone, praise God for that, but still allow this text to examine you. Think about it. They're using their religious rituals to check a box. They're going through the motions. Their external act of worship was right, but their motive was wrong, and God rebukes them and calls them to repentance. So let me ask you a simple question. If you came to church this morning, why? If you go to Bible studies during the week, how come? If we do our own private time with the Lord, or we study theology or anything else, we would consider good Christian acts. Why do we do that? Why do we practice these things? What is the point, if you boil it all down, of worship? It's to make much of God. It's to know God, like Pastor Clint preached this morning, not to check a box. And sometimes theologians refer to these kinds of activities as the means of grace. Have you ever heard that term? means of grace. That's just, if you've never heard that, the means of grace are the tools God has given us to grow us in his grace. So to grow us as believers and make us more like Christ. Things like the word and baptism and the Lord's supper and prayer. And those are good. Those are important. But we can't lose sight of why God has given them to us. They are a means to an end, not the end itself. The people here thought just going to the temple was the end, not growing and more deeply knowing the Lord, to delight more in him, to make much of him. This is the heart of true worship that these people coming to the temple were missing. It's about focusing on who God is, not just blind, false worship for the sake of ritual. And Jeremiah doesn't stop there because they don't worship rightly, they don't live rightly. And that brings us to our second heading, foul living foul living. In verse 5, God again commands them to repent and reform their ways, and God says again, for if you truly make your ways and deeds good. So when it comes to genuine worship, God exposes something else key that they are missing. When it comes to worship and serving the Lord, here's an ingredient that is missing for them. Personal holiness. What specifically does he expect them to do? This is how they must reform their ways. So verse 5 and following is a picture of exhaustive repentance. Repentance touches every area of our lives. It changes how we approach God, how we treat others, how we think about our desires and temptations. It leaves no stone unturned in our lives. So God begins exposing the sin of Judah. Look at the middle of verse 5 if you truly do justice between a man and his neighbor. So specifically here, God has in mind justice between two parties, a man and his neighbor. What is one way to love your neighbor? Well, to treat him or her justly. Justice refers to balanced scales, to treating one another fairly. So God's people were to be fair, to not take advantage of each other. And we see in more detail how they missed this in verse 6, look at verse 6. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the orphan, or the widow. 
These three are often mentioned together in God's law. So for example, Deuteronomy 10.18 says of God, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows love for the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. So each of these three groups has something important that they lack. Sojourners lacked a home. So those who came from outside Israel who sought to worship the Lord were to be welcomed, not taken advantage of. Orphans lacked parents. Widows lacked a husband. So what do these three ultimately have in common? For one reason or another, each of these groups were particularly vulnerable and at risk of someone taking advantage of them. And in Malachi 3.5, God opposes, he says, those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh. Now, not much further detail is given here in Jeremiah 7, but we can imagine what this looked like in Judah. Employers taking advantage of employees, neighbors trying to steal and take advantage of one another, partiality and favoritism given to certain parties while others are neglected or even abused. And God has not changed. And his heart still goes out to the vulnerable. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. These groups were easily targeted and vulnerable then and still are today. Years ago, Kristen and I had the chance to go on to Haiti on a missions trip. And on the final day, we were able to visit an orphanage. And we were there just to play with the kids and have fun. And some of the people in our group weren't sure that they really wanted to or how to handle it. So we get there. And again, the goal is just love kids. Just spend time with little kids. So each person in our group was allowed to pick up a child and take the child to this area on the roof where they had some very basic toys to play and have fun. And, and as you come up to the room, it had a door, kind of like you see in a nursery today. You know, you have the doors. It's like the top half swings open. Picture a door like that. So when you walked up to this little nursery where these kids are, you, you, you look in, and as soon as you walk up and you look in, the children saw us, and numerous children just crammed together in this room, probably two years old and younger, and as soon as they see us walk up, every single one of these kids do this. Because they're just sitting there all day, and they know you can't take all of us. So every one of them just reaches out and holds up their arms, looking into your eyes, just hoping out of the mass of kids in the room, just choose them to show some affection, to play. And my heart broke. And I just started picking up child after child, handing them to everyone I could in our group. We became like a conveyor belt. If you had arms and you were alive, you were getting a kid. Like we're just passing them out of this room. Everyone was getting one. Because all that we wanted to do was show a small amount of love and light to these kids who spend most of their time alone in a room. And our group experienced what was only a fraction of God's heart toward the vulnerable. So this makes us ask, so how do we care for and show compassion to the vulnerable today? And there is no one answer to that question. I've seen this applied in many different ways in the lives of believers, and I'm sure you have as well. Maybe it means intentionally praying for those you know are oppressed. Maybe it means showing compassion to someone you know lost a spouse. Maybe it means visiting a nursing home to spend time with someone. For some, it might mean fostering a child or adopting. 
or just being aware of those around you who have lost a parent or are particularly vulnerable and showing kindness to them. How this applies to each of us will vary, but if this is God's heart, it should be ours as well. And God continues calling them to repent in the middle of verse 6. And this is where things go from bad to worse. Look at verse 6. And do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after false false gods to your own evil demise. How dark had Judah become? They came to the temple to worship God, and during the week, they covered up the murder of the innocent. They are vile, blind, self-deceived religious hypocrites, worshiping God in the temple, but worshiping idols in daily life and they do it to their own evil demise. Shedding innocent blood and idolatry, notice, are directly linked. False worship and idolatry leads to bloodshed and destruction. And we get an example of this later in Jeremiah 7. Look at Jeremiah 7, verse 31. Jeremiah 7, 31 shows us how this innocent blood was connected with false worship and how it played out in Judah. Jeremiah 7, verse 31 They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come upon my heart. When people refuse to worship the Lord and obey him, and when people rebel against his word, one of the first groups to pay the price is almost always children. And in Judah, they sacrificed their children in the high places, specifically unto a false god named Moloch. And in our culture, we don't call it child sacrifice. We call it abortion. We don't call it false religion. We call it reproductive freedom. We call it sexual liberty. These are the gods of Moloch masquerading as modern trends in our world today. And it is still equally an abomination before God. Psalm 139, 13, for you formed me and my you you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. God is the author of human life. And human life does not begin at birth. And it does not begin at 20 weeks. And it does not begin at six weeks. It begins at conception. When God forms a unique life made in his image in the womb. And even my three-year-old son gets this. We've, we've talked to Michael and we've asked Michael, you know, Michael with Kristen being pregnant, are you ready to be a big brother? And we've asked him that question and he just says, I already am a big brother. Baby's in mommy's belly. Yeah, he gets it. He understands it more than many adults, including some creating policy in our country that God knits us together in the womb. And despite all the injustice and all the oppression and all the bloodshed, Verse 11 allows us to come up and to take a breath of God's grace. Look at verse 7. God says, repent, turn from your wickedness, then I will let you dwell in this place and the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Now, this is a specific promise to Judah. If they don't repent, they will be forced out of the land. But if they do, God will allow them to remain in the land that he has promised them forever. And we're not going to talk about that exact promise in detail here, but I do want to just highlight it and tell you to note this briefly in your mind. Land 
and the people coming back to the land will become a major theme that Jeremiah will come back to repeatedly later in the book, and we will get there. But for now, I just want you to note that in the midst of this scathing indictment on the nation, I mean, this is brutal. This is heavy. And in the middle of this, he still extends forgiveness. Every command to repent is an invitation for us to experience God's grace. Yes, he exposes our foul living, but when we repent, the Lord always welcomes those who come to him with open arms. His loving kindness, his forgiveness, takes sin that is scarlet and makes it white as snow. From injustice to innocent bloodshed, he takes us when we're dead in our trespasses and sin, and he makes us new creatures in Christ with new hearts and new longings to obey him for his glory. Regardless how dark the history is, God says, come to me. Repent, and you will find I am a God of forgiveness and grace and love. But for Judah, God is not yet done exposing the spiritual rot, the, the mold and the sin that's infecting the nation. There are still more reasons they need reformation. So that brings us to our final heading, fake repentance. Fake repentance. In one quick burst, beginning in verse 8, the Lord further reveals how they have violated and shredded the terms of the covenant. Look at verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in lying words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear while lying and burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? And just note it, theft, murder, adultery, lying, idolatry. It's, it's six of the Ten Commandments all in one single verse. And notice the word God uses at the end of verse 10 to describe how he views these sins. The end of verse 10 in Jeremiah 7, he refers to them as abominations, meaning he hates these sins and he detests them in the lives of his people. And then the rest of verse 10, he drills home how self-deceived they really are. They make a mockery of his law. They break the covenant over and over and then have the audacity to come, verse 10 says, stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. So they've convinced themselves they can live one way during the week, sweep it under the rug, and then come to the house of God. In our terms, in our language, they think they're saved. But their works demonstrate they're lost. And to demonstrate and to justify their, their sinful lifestyles as they come to worship God, they are quoting Biblical promises. Notice that. They say, we are delivered. That's Bible language. That's language that is used all over the Old Testament. Here's just one example. Psalm 34, verse 4. Psalm 34, 4 says, I inquired of Yahweh, and he answered me, and delivered me from all that I dread. They are appealing to God's deliverance to feel more comfortable in their sin. They live in sin, they come to the temple and they tell themselves, everything is fine. We're delivered. We're repentant. I mean, we're at the temple, aren't we? We're the ones that are actually here. And they soothe their conscience with false hope. They use God's grace like a band-aid. They can slap on the gaping wound of their own immorality. And their repentance is not genuine. It is fake. 
2 Timothy 3.5 says, to use New Testament language, they, they have a form of godliness, but their actions, they deny its power. Jeremiah may have been written long ago, but this kind of behavior is timeless. Many are deceived because they think they can enjoy the benefits of salvation and religion while at the same time living and acting however they want. And Paul ran into this. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul says in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, I want to be abundantly clear. Christians sin. And they repent of their sin. We, we turn from our sin because we love God. We repent continually, daily. So yes, we fall into the mud, but unlike a pig, we don't wallow in it. But when you have a person who doesn't love God, doesn't pursue God, doesn't obey God, isn't growing a personal holiness, who is comfortable with their sin and says, this is just who I am, this is my life, and I'm not really that concerned about if I look like how God describes a Christian, but then they say, I must be delivered. I've been to church. I was raised in a Christian home. That's the same fake repentance found in Jeremiah 7. So God gives the people one more rebuke in verse 11. Has this house which is called by my name, become a robber's den in your sight. Behold, I even I have seen it, declares Yahweh. So as the people sinned, they ran to the temple for false assurance, and it had become, verse 11 says, like a robber's den. Now a den is another word for a cave. A cave was a natural place for a robber to hide. So picture a criminal who plans and he plots to commit a crime. So he plans his crime, he kind of slithers out, he's looking for his victim, he commits the crime, robs somebody blind, and then he flees the scene to hide away in a cave. And when he gets there, he thinks, I've got away with it. I made it to my cave, my little hideout. I went shopping not long ago, and as I walked into the store, there were two people running out of the store with arms full of clothes that they very clearly had not paid for. And, and I remember watching them, and they ran to their car, and they got in, and they peeled out, and it stood out that the closer they got to their car, they come out of the store, and it's kind of like all intensity on their face, and then the closer they get to the car, they start smiling. Why? Because they thought, we're good. Yes, we committed this crime, they know that because they're running, but we've made it to our car. We got away with it. Their car was their robber's den. It's where they ran for safety. That's how Judah used the temple of God. Throughout the land, they committed grievous sin, but then like robbers fleeing to a cave, they would run to the temple as a place of safety to hide, to soothe their conscience and tell themselves we're spiritually okay, even as we rebel against God. And they can fool themselves, but you can't fool God. So the, the end of verse 11 says, I, even I, have seen it, declares Yahweh. He sees it all. As Jeremiah just pokes and prods and exposes, you're getting away with nothing. God sees everything. So Jeremiah preaches this sermon. How do you think the people responded to this message? How do you think the religious people who have this confidence would respond to this kind of indictment on their religion? 
Well, we actually don't have to wonder. Remember this sermon I mentioned earlier is repeated again in Jeremiah 26? Well, Jeremiah 26, 11 actually tells us how the people respond. So Jeremiah 26, 11 says, and you can turn there if you would like, or you can just listen to me read it. Jeremiah 26, verse 11 says that after the people heard this message, this is what happened. Jeremiah 26, 11. Then the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people saying, a judgment of death for this man. He's prophesied against this city as you've heard and you're hearing. So you have a prophet. And the prophet is sent by God directly to his people. And the prophet stands in the temple and declares, you've made God's house a robber's den. And in response, they want to have the prophet killed. Now, Jeremiah 7 is not the most well-known passage of Scripture. But is there anything that you noticed in there, especially in Jeremiah 7, verse 11, that sounds familiar to you in the New Testament? Well, go to Mark chapter 11. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Jesus is approaching the end of his life, and the conflict between he and the religious leaders of Israel is coming to a head. He has entered into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, and Mark eleven fifteen picks up what happens next. It says, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. So as Jesus drives out those who are disgracing the temple, at the end of verse 17, he quotes this little phrase from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Like Jeremiah, Jesus came to call the people to repentance. He, repo he exposed their false worship. He revealed their foul living and their need for repentance. He brought to light their injustice and their traditions and all the ways they had violated God's law. And in response, how do the people respond? After he cleanses the temple and he exposes it at a robber's den, what do they want to do to Jesus? Look at Mark eleven eighteen. Mark eleven eighteen. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. They want to destroy him. They want to have him killed just like the leaders wanted to kill Jeremiah. Only in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater prophet, they succeed. Not because they're more clever than Jesus, but because our Lord lays down his life willingly. And he dies on the cross, and he bears our sin upon himself, and he rises from the dead, and today he stands as the only mediator between God and man. And through his spirit, he calls us today to repent of our sin, to abandon any hope of saving or changing ourselves, to throw ourselves completely on the mercy of Christ. That's how God reforms us. That's how God changes us. Every sin in Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11, lurks in our hearts and in our lives. 
You can't make your way and your deeds good. You can't live a perfect, just life, free from all idolatry. But Jesus did. So for us today, Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11, is not merely a depressing catalog of Judah's sin. It's an arrow that points us to the one greater than Jeremiah, to the one who is greater than the temple, to the one who has grace greater than all your sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are found in him, praise God, you can actually and truly say with every fiber of your being, I am delivered. Not because of your works, but because of him. Let's pray. Lord, it is uncomfortable to have sin exposed. But we thank you that you sent Jeremiah to the nation of Judah to call her to repentance. And as we read these words that you have preserved in the scriptures for us as an example to us, we are reminded of our own desperate need for your grace. God, we give you glory for all that you have done, not just in Judah, but in our lives. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ not only identified the sin in the temple when he was on earth, but that he laid down his life and that he was killed and that he died to take our sin and the wrath we deserve upon himself. We give you all the glory and would you help us by your spirit to continually repent, to reform our ways through your grace so that we would live in a way that brings glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.